0: Well, good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. We come to a very familiar passage of scriptures for many of you, but there may be some of you this morning that are not familiar with all the details. And we've been given the challenging task of looking at chapters 13, 14 and 15. And you have received an outline as you came in this morning in your church paper. On one side I've given you an outline of the three chapters that you can use for your private study and on the other side is an outline of the message this morning. So you can follow exactly where we're going as we share together in this uh, amazing passage of God's Word this morning. Under the heading, The God Who Triumphs For His People, last week uh, you dealt with the devastating final plague when the Egyptians experienced the death of their firstborn children and stocks. The Israelites, in obedience to the Lord's instructions, had sacrificed a lamb, painted its blood over their door frames, and the Lord passed over every house sheltering under the blood of the lamb. You no doubt noted. Uh, how this was a dramatic presentation of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and as the Lamb, he has sacrificed at, he was sacrificed at Passover two thousand years ago, so that whoever trusts in his blood is sheltered, is protected from the coming judgment. The first thing we note is that uh, on that outline that you 've got is that the Passover is the, identifies the uniqueness of god 's people, verses one to sixteen. I assume last week that you reflected on Passover and about the meaning of salvation. At Passover, we see that salvation is not about the Lord inspecting the inside of the house to see who is worthy of salvation it's only about seeing the lamb's blood on the outside it's not about the quality of your life it's about the quality of your lamb's death so it was with these little lambs and so it is with the lamb of God Passover means the end of condemnation It's the end of fear. It's the end of any prospect of judgment. But it is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of our exodus. We're not just sheltered, but we are brought out. So what's the next thing that happened to the Israelites after the Passover? Do you want a drum roll? No, no, no. (laughs) The next thing that happened was the feast of unleavened bread. Now I know that excites you and you're tingling with anticipation uh, just about the thought of the feast of unleavened bread. Now if your trembling fingers can handle the excitement and turn to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3 and we'll see why the feast of unleavened bread is crucial to understanding our salvation. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3. Moses is speaking on the day of Passover and he says, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Yeast. Now look at verse 6 and 7. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during these seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. The feast of Passover was always followed by the feast of unleavened bread. After Passover you must be yeast-free, For a week, in this particular in this particular situation, we would say why. Well, think about the night of the Passover. They ate the 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 lamb with yeast-free bread, unleavened bread. Chapter twelve, verse thirty-nine, tells us why, and the reason is that they were in a hurry. Look at verse thirty nine of chapter twelve. And so with the dough they made with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. They didn't have time for the yeast to rise. If you want to leave Egypt, then you can't be waiting for your bread to rise. If anyone if anyone put yeast in in, the bre- in their bread they'd be saying I want to enjoy the lamb but I want to stay in Egypt to wait for the bread to rise the feast of unleavened bread was to be an annual memorial at the end of March to remind them and to also teach their children of the mighty miracle that God had performed in delivering them it is a festival that marks them as a very unique people of God. You can see how this applies to you and me. The cross doesn't free us to sin, it frees us from sin. You don't say to Jesus our Lamb, thanks for your death, now I can stay in sin. We say, thanks for your death, now I'm leaving sin. People of the Lamb will be people determined to get rid of Egypt living that's the real meaning of the feast of unleavened bread you can study more in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 secondly we note that the shortest way is not always the best way in verses 17 to 18 we read when pharaoh let the people god go god did not lead them on the road through the philistine country though it was shorter For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Now, it's not a very good message today in in a society in which it requires instant satisfaction. But this principle that comes out of this story that the shortest way is not always the best way is something that we need to get into our minds and hearts because we want instant satisfaction. We want what we want and we want it now but God sometimes delays that satisfaction, delays that point for a reason that you will be thankful that it didn't come when you wanted it. Now the interesting thing uh, is that uh, uh, the interesting thing is that by the way of the the closest route to Israel, would be the way right across the coast. It would be the easiest way to go right through the land of the Philistines right on into the promised land. They could actually make the journey within a week or so into the land. But God knew that they were not prepared. That if the Philistines would come out and meet them with war, their faith in God was not yet strong enough fear would grip their hearts God said and they would seek to return to Egypt so the wilderness experience is necessary in order that they might have the experiences of trusting in God throughout that journey learning what it is to have faith in God learning about the power of God, so that when they finally come to the land and face the enemies, they would have great confidence and faith in God to deliver the land into their hands, that final victory. Now, brothers and sisters, the same principle is true for us. The shortest way is not always the best. Through the wilderness experiences, we learn how God can meet our needs no matter what they be. That God is sufficient to take care of our needs and how that God will answer and respond to our prayers. Thirdly, we note God's presence in the cloud and the fire in verses 20 to 22. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people except for chapter 14 verses 19 to 20 did you notice that when it was read? The cloud left the front of the people guiding them during the day and it went to behind them so that the Egyptians who were following were in a fog and couldn't know where they were going. That's the only time that the cloud changed its position. And so in the daytime, the cloud was in front of them to lead them. At night, there was the light of the sky to lead them. Note that in chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, when they were crossing that Red Sea, Being chased by the chariots of Egypt, the cloud moved behind so that the Egyptians were in fog, which added to their confusion and fear. Then we go into chapter 14 and there uh, we see the doubts and fear and complaining that comes into God's people. So chapter 14, I, the Lord, leads them to camp by the Red Sea in a valley. Mountain to the left, mountain to the right, sea in front of them, and what's behind them. From verse 3, we read about how the Lord stirs up Pharaoh to chase them. Now this is extraordinary. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, What on earth is the Lord doing? Has he led them into a trap? What would you be feeling in this particular situation? Here's what the Israelites say in verse 11. Hey Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been far better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Verse 11 is tremendous sarcasm. I don't know whether you've come to appreciate Jewish comedians over the time, but Jewish comedy has been uh, around for a long time and you could almost hear Woody Allen or Mel Brooks saying this line. Here's the joke. Egypt's got a lot of graves, famous graves, the pyramids. And if you believe the film of the Ten Commandments, the Israelites had been working on those pyramids. And so they say to Moses, what a shame. You'd want, if you'd wanted us to die, we know where there's some great graves back in Egypt. Pity that we've all got to die in the desert. So the first thing they said is sarcasm, but then they lie. In verse 12, they had never said, leave us alone to serve the Egyptians when they were in Egypt they were desperate to be saved but now with Pharaoh bearing down on them they say those very telling words it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert under trial they start to see their past their present and their future all wrong They think back to Egypt and they have rose-coloured glasses. They reimagine Egypt to be the good old days, if you like. They look at the present and all they see is the desert and the armies and the Red Sea and hunger and thirst. They look at the future and they can only imagine death. I wonder if that's how we think when trials come to us, when we're going through challenging times. Do we tend to look at the past with with rose-coloured glasses? Do we look at the problems that are so beyond us that we can't imagine what the future would be like? Do we only see doom and gloom even as these Israelites the people of God felt when they were surrounded, trapped in and being chased by the crack troops of Pharaoh's army? Well, there is another perspective on those trials and challenges that you and I find, and particularly for the people of Israel. Look at verse 4. The Lord says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Here's what's really going on. The Lord's glory is all about the salvation of his people. He doesn't have an ego problem. He's not into appearing big and powerful for his own sake. His glory is the salvation of his people. But the Lord gains much glory when his people are saved against the odds. There is more glory in going through the Red Sea than in sauntering along the Mediterranean. If you remember that picture going straight across, it would only take a week or so. If they were sauntering across the top there uh, 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 along the Mediterranean, going through the Red Sea and all the adventures that they go through, there was more glory for him in the demonstration of his power and his miraculous power that not only Egypt but all the nations around feared the Lord because they saw his mighty power revealed. Now some sceptical scholars have attacked God's miracle in two ways of the parting of the Red Sea. It's, uh, some say it's a natural phenomenon that occasionally happens at low tide and there's high winds. Others say it was the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, you know, trying to explain away the miracle. Pastor David Bridge tells the story of a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. As the preacher talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted, Praise the Lord! Taken all them children through the deep waters! What a mighty miracle! Well, the preacher didn't believe in miracles and he was annoyed at this intervention, so he rather condescendingly told the congregation that the Israelites were probably in marshlands with an ebbing tide so that they were simply wading through six inches of water. In response, the same voice was again heard. He said, praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What, what a mighty miracle. <laughs> all right. Secondly, we look in chapter 14 of Moses' advice to these trembling people verses 13 and 14 Moses answered the people do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord the deliverance that the Lord will bring the Egyptians you see today you will never see again the Lord will fight for you you need only to be still now you can imagine the people thinking that he's crazy and that they were crazy to follow him what on earth are we doing here? And Moses says don't be afraid stand still and see the salvation of the Lord come on Moses give us a break he continues then the Lord said to Moses why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on one translation says, "Stop praying, just move." You know sometimes when we, we don't know how far to go ahead, we go far, we go as far as we can see. You know sometimes because we can't see that far ahead, we, we remain stagnant. we don't do anything. We stop. But if we move forward as far as we can see, we, we know the instructions and we're obedient as far as we know, then we're trusting God for the next step and that's virtually what he's saying here in other words God has a time to pray for sure but then there's also a time when we need to just start moving that's what God said hey why do you cry out to me get moving for for heaven's sake That's, that's what he's saying you can't do that Lord because they'll stone me for sure there's a red sea in front of them and they're blocked in how can I speak to them to go forward and then let's watch him do it for God's people. Verses, verse 21 of chapter 40. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their side, on one side, and one on their left. The uh, Moses' digital camera taking a selfie wasn't quite clear, but (laughs) what we're seeing in Exodus chapter 14 is the divine power of creation being unleashed for the salvation of his people. I rather like this more modern version of that (laughs) parting of the (laughs) Red Sea. But the same power that means life for Israel, means death for Egypt. Look on, to verse 15, look on to Exodus chapter 15 verse 9 to read what the Egyptians were saying to themselves as they saw this divine miracle. The enemy boasted, this is part of Moses' song. The enemy boasts, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now there is such poetic justice here. The king of Egypt had once wanted to drown all the Israelites in water. Now his 600 top soldiers are drowned. Pharaoh's forces uh, uh, pursued them to death, but they're the ones who die. It's the bloodlust of the Egyptians that cost them their own blood. These soldiers were the enforcers of centuries-long genocide. And they had entered the Red Sea to destroy God's people once and for all. And destruction is what they reaped for themselves. This was the end of 400 years of oppression, 400 years of hardship and genocide. The evil perpetrators have been justly and poetically judged. And Israelites, who once were slaves, are now free. Thirdly, we note in chapter 14 uh, that uh, Israel saw the great power of the Lord and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. So God now is beginning to build their faith. God is beginning a work in them that is going to prepare them to come into the land of promise. Lessons of faith that are so important if they are going to conquer the land that God had promised because the taking of the land is actually the appropriation of faith. Every place you put your foot, God said to Joshua, I have given to you. But you've got to go in and put your foot there. You've got to claim it. And so when we talk about faith in God and, and in God's power, there's often action required of us to step out of the comfort zone and to trust him. And in stepping out of that comfort zone, there is fear. But our faith trusts him. He gives us courage to stand firm and to be still and see his hand. And then in chapter 15, so Moses broke forth into song at the end of this amazing victory. Chapter 15 is Moses' song of God's deliverance and victory. Verse 1, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him and first we note that the prophetess dances and sings to the Lord can you imagine the whole scene Moses breaking forth into song of God's power and God's deliverance Miriam now his older sister coming out with a tambourine and all the women coming out this huge dance celebrating that God has brought great deliverance for his people God has brought great victory to his people they rejoice in their salvation they acknowledge this amazing demonstration of god's power of his glory and of his purposes that he shall bring to pass and how that he shall reign forever and for ever But by the end of chapter 15, the stark truth begins to dawn on them. Two million people. Two million people freed from slavery, but now the biggest refugee crisis in human history. Here the people being delivered from Egypt, set free from the bondage of Egypt, but now refugees. Two million people en route to the promised land. And we find in verse 22 to 24 there are some complaints. Yes, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness to Shur and they went for three days into the wilderness and they found no water. So they're in trouble. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah and they were bitter. Therefore they called it Marah, which means bitter. And the people murmured against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Wow. Has Moses got his hands full? Now here here they are dancing. The trembles are out singing to God's victory because he had wiped out all the Egyptians. Three days later, how quickly they forget the power of God. We're going to die of thirst. Give us water to drink, they're saying. And so Moses cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree which when he had cast it into the waters the waters were made sweet. Verse 25 of chapter 15. And then we note finally a conditional promise in verse 25 to 26. So they're coming now into an even deeper relationship with God. A covenant relationship. And God said if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you Jehovah Rapha the Lord that heals you and so they came to Elam where there were 12 wells of water and there were 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the waters. So now God brings them to a place of refreshment, refreshing themselves, learning the ways of God, learning about God, being prepared for the experiences that God had ahead for them as he brings them into the fullness of his blessing and promises. Now remember, Israel's story is often our story. We too have been delivered from sin and Satan and self through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We are headed for God's holy dwelling place. The Lord brings us out through trials into deeper dependence. That's what we have been learning. The people of Israel were to remember They were to remember the Passover. They were to remember the Exodus. The Passover lamb, perfect, without spot or blemish. Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We too must remember. We must remember Christ crucified for us. We must remember with thanksgiving that we have received forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ our Saviour. We must remember that Christ has been raised from the dead. We must remember with gratitude that Christ has come to live in our hearts by faith. We must remember that we have God's Spirit who enables us to do God's will. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have passed over from death to life through faith in him. No longer bound by sin, but free to be obedient to his word. Next week, we're going to look at uh, chapters uh, 16, 17 and 18, another three chapters. And as we look, you'll see uh, a bit of a lesson about grumbling or gratitude. You know, is it uh, grumbling that defines us as a people or as an individual? Or is a heart full of gratitude? Not swinging between the two, but, but finding confidence and finding identity in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. At verse 14 that we mentioned earlier in our worship don't be afraid stand firm seed the deliverance he will fight for you be still as we go out today I trust that whatever you're facing if you haven't even come to that point where you've yielded yourself to Jesus that you've repented of the past let go of things that have bound you and found freedom in Jesus Christ you'll find that freedom today by talking to one of the leaders of the church, that you'll come face to face with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're facing a challenge that's beyond you, here is the message from the people of Israel. Don't be afraid. God brings us the, the victory. Stand firm. See the deliverance. He will fight for you. And be still. Let's bow together in prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you in the love of Jesus Christ. May the Lord work in your life this week in a special way, bringing forth victory out of seeming defeat, revealing that way when there seems to be no way. May you experience God's hand upon your life as he trains, as he teaches, as he he develops his work of love and grace within your life as he prepares you for the future and for those things that he wants you to possess of his grace and of his glory. May the Lord strengthen you and cause your life to be a witness for him. In Jesus' name. And the people said...